Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Flyover Labs, and today we have to talk to a legend in the blockchain space, William Mugayar. William has been a huge advocate for the blockchain for many years. He's, author, he's also author of the book, The Business Blockchain, and an advisor to many companies built on the blockchain, including Ethereum. So he also has a must-read blog at startupmanagement.org for any blockchain Bitcoin enthusiast. And now William just launched WMX, which is the William Guyar High Growth Crypto Assets Index, which is a fund that includes a basket of 15 cryptocurrencies. So William stays busy. So I'm quite excited to have William today. I've been following him for quite a long time and uh, curious to dig into more of uh, into the space. So William, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. Definitely. And so, all right. You can tell us about the block. Or what is the blockchain? But first, you know, I was curious. You know, what initially sparked your interest in Bitcoin blockchain um, a while back? And do you remember when that was? Yeah, <laughs> uh, sure. Actually, the first time I heard about it was uh, in 2011. At the time, I was running my company Engageo, and I kind of ignored it for a year. Uh, and then it came back uh, in 2013. But this was really the third data point uh, that I had. The first data point being uh, my encounter with the web uh, in its early days, in 94, 95. I was uh, quite involved in uh, in seeing how it developed uh, before it was the web. Uh, at the time, I was with Hewlett Packard. But I uh, also wrote a book in 97 called Opening Digital Markets. So I was very early in trying to explain the web uh, to the masses. And it dawned on me at the time that the web was all about re-engineering. Now, that was the first data point. The second data point was uh, many years later, in 2001, after the dot-com crash, there was a new wave of technology called peer-to-peer that emerged. And at the time, I was running a website called peerintelligence.com. And I was uh, following all of the peer-to-peer technologies. And at the time, it was just really file sharing. It was the time of Napster. And uh, it was about music sharing and uh, uh, some data as well. But that didn't uh, go very well, uh, if you recall. (laughs) And then it died. And then uh, almost uh, 10 years later, uh, we heard about Bitcoin. uh, And I heard about Bitcoin and the blockchain. And it dawned on me that it was really about peer-to-peer again, and it was about decentralization, which was kind of the new theme, Uh, but it was also about re-engineering. It was, at the same time, bringing the web excitement, uh, the peer-to-peer technologies, uh, and the prospects of now doing things with a new technology, uh, with a new theme, which is decentralization. And uh, that's when I realized that Uh, This was not just about currency, because at the time, uh, really, when you asked anybody about uh, this field, they knew Bitcoin, but maybe they didn't know the blockchain. Up to today, uh, I often ask people, uh, have you heard of the blockchain? And in many cases, the answer is no. But then when I say, well, have you heard of Bitcoin? And the answer is most probably yes. And then I say, well, blockchain is the technology behind Bitcoin. Mm. 
and then we go from there. Interesting. And when did you first start really diving in and writing about the blockchain? Do you remember when it was, was about four years ago in 2013, uh, the end of 13, more or less, uh, or middle, middle to end. Uh, I, I started to become uh, uh, quite intrigued by uh, Bitcoin specifically at the time. And uh, I immersed myself and started to research it uh, very deeply and started to talk to people that were quite involved in it. And and one of those uh, early people was uh, Vitalik Buterin, who I met in mm-hmm. Toronto. Uh, I was lucky enough that he lived where I lived. And at the time, it was a series of meetups, uh, the Bitcoin meetup group in, in Toronto. That's what wow. it was called. And I had heard that uh, Vitalik was working on this uh, paper, uh, and that was going to be the next thing beyond Bitcoin. And uh, I started to talk to him, and very quickly it dawned on me that uh, uh, this was going to be the beginning of something that was going to be very big. And it wasn't just about currency, it was really about people, about uh, new changes, uh, about doing things uh, in, in new ways that were not done before. And uh, I was very much a, a believer. Uh, I became a believer in the topic of decentralization and peer-to-peer and what it enables uh, for business and society, basically. And at that time, there probably wasn't a lot of people writing about it. I mean, somehow you really became a, one of the leading authors, I'd say, on this area. When you started, was there many people writing about it? No, that, that's true. I mean, I've I've been writing about it for more than four years now, and I've stayed with it. That's the thing. Yeah. Uh, probably, probably the longest running regular blogger on the topic. Uh, uh, I've written maybe maybe seventy different blog posts on on it, and 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 continue to blog. Uh, I wish I could blog daily. Uh, I, I don't write uh, as fast as I'd like, <laughs> uh, but I, I continue to be uh, uh, very intrigued because we, we we still have so much to learn about the topic, Definitely. and and we, we are still uh, peeling all the layers of this onion, uh, and this is kind of very very fascinating uh, to me at least. All right, and so uh, well, but your all your posts are quite thoughtful. So you know, it's there's a lot of bloggers who blog every day, but sometimes you know they they're not as thoughtful. So you put some time and effort in each one um, for the most part. Um, so before we go too far, can you maybe for those who don't know this this I mean you kind of alluded to it, but uh, describe the blockchain a little bit. I know it's that that could be like a this could be a 15 minute talk on its own, but Describe the blockchain and how it's related to Bitcoin and crypto um, currency sure. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when when describing the blockchain, I like to contrast it to the web. If you think about it, the web has given us really the flow of information. Uh, so more most of what we do with the web is about publishing information, about sending information, uh, or about e-commerce uh, lately and uh, social interaction. But what the web has not given us is, uh, in, in a native way, in the same way that websites are native to the web, what was missing from a native perspective of, in the web was uh, money. So we cannot send money, we could not, up to, the, up to now with the blockchain and Bitcoin, we could not send money from a one person to one another person uh, in the same way that uh, I can publish uh, anything without any authorization 
without having anybody stopping me today. The money aspect had to go through banks or had to go through intermediaries. So what the blockchain is, is a technology that allows the transmission of uh, value, of digital value, money being uh, the best representation of it, from one person to another directly without having anybody in the middle. So that is really the innovation uh, of the blockchain. And it manifested itself early on with Bitcoin as the currency. So the currency is, is one aspect of the blockchain. And currency obviously is valuable. It is value. But you can extrapolate and think about any asset now that can be digitized or that could have a digital equivalent can now be transmitted via the blockchain from one person to another without having anybody in the middle. So this is important because this is going to disrupt and it is starting to disrupt anybody who is in the middle. Anybody who was in the middle was delaying these transactions for many reasons, for checking them, for authorizing them, for knowing the contents of these transactions, uh, like the banks. I mean, the banks they gave us they gave us the illusion that we needed them to to transmit uh, money from one place to another. But in reality, what they were doing is uh, being in cahoots with each other and synchronizing their databases. And every time you run, uh, you you transfer money from one place to another. There's probably five databases in the middle that get involved. The whole world runs on databases. All the applications run on databases. So the thing that uh, the blockchain disrupts from a technology perspective is the database. So now, instead of the database being in the middle of all of this, we have the ledger, the distributed and shared ledger, which is a key part of the blockchain. And the analogy I like to give is Microsoft Word versus Google Docs. With Microsoft Word, if you want to make changes, you want to you change you send the uh, document and you have to wait until the changes are uh, coming back to you. And in the meantime, you're in the dark; you don't know what the changes are. But if you use the same document on a, on in the cloud with Google Docs, the second that this other person makes the changes, you're seeing them. And there's only one single version of the truth. There's a single version of changes, and it's always there, it's always uh, visible. And the other component that the blockchain adds to this is that it's immutable. So every time you make a change, you cannot erase anything that happened before. So you have this long-standing record, a historical record, of whatever has happened before in a way that is uh, permanent. Uh, so it's like having a big spreadsheet that is programmable. And that's really the innovation of the blockchain. Very nice. Okay, that's helpful. And you know, you've been a, an advocate for the blockchain for you know many years. And uh, you know, it, the the market sentiment kind of goes up and down, or the public perception of with the blockchain. You know, has your interest ever waned, or have you ever been nervous, like, oh, maybe this isn't, you know, because we all question sometimes, right? But uh, <sighs> has there been moments where you have questioned whether this is going to be a something something big? Uh, actually, no. If anything, I am even more excited than ever because what we have been do- doing so far was building the foundation. And as you know, when you're building the foundation, it kind of 
a lot of it is invisible, and it may be boring to kind of uh, take seven floors down before you start to see the building go up. And the excitement happens when you start to see something. And now we're at the point where we're starting to see some visible uh, implementations, some visible applications, and that's more exciting. Uh, and now it allows us to do more things. I mean, if anything, I am multiplying my activities right now, uh, not just on the investment side, uh, but look, we did the Token Summit uh, last May in New York. Uh, it was the first uh, conference focused on tokens specifically. Uh, we're going to do another one in San Francisco on December the 5th and a third one in New York next year in May. Uh, I've just uh, launched a uh, an index, a blockchain index, which we can talk about later on. Uh, this week, I also launched an initiative called Token Awareness, which is all about uh, tracking the compliance and regulatory uh, best practices in the space. And again, we can talk about it later on. And there's no shortage of uh, activities right now in the space. Uh, I happen to be a little bit lucky here because a lot of companies contact me and they want me to listen to what they are doing. Um, so I get a really good view of all, all, all of what's, what's happening today. And, and we are now entering the phase where uh, a lot of applications are being built uh, on the blockchain uh, that will be put in the hands of consumers. Uh, and and that, that's really a very exciting development. And can you uh, talk about some of that kind of that foundation infrastructure that's being laid, you know, whether that's a, a three, a three, Ethereum or whatever other tools and uh, application or infrastructure? That's yeah. Been built? yeah. Well, Ethereum is a big part of it. Uh, Ethereum is, is many things. It's, it's first and foremost, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's a blockchain. People think about of it uh, as, as a blockchain first and foremost, which means that it's a network of computers, about 16,000 of them, uh, that are the nodes out there. It's almost like a cloud uh, system um, uh, to validate the transactions. But beyond that, it's also a development platform. It's a complete uh, and comprehensive uh, development environment for writing new types of decentralized application. So think of it as like the new Java, uh, but for this new uh, frontier. So Java, I use Java as an analogy because Java is really the language of the web. And there are maybe 10 million Java developers today in the world. And you, you cannot write a web application without touching Java one way or the other, or JavaScript. And, and because you can write it once and it runs on the web, uh, so, uh, the, uh, so, it, so that's what Ethereum has given us, is, is this new uh, way of developing applications uh, that are decentralized, and, and, and that's very exciting now. I mean, it's not the only application, obviously. There are, there are other uh, technologies that are uh, being built uh, right now based on Bitcoin and, and other types of blockchain, blockchains, and, and this is very exciting. So... Uh, the thing that we need more of right now uh, that I'm a little bit worried about is that we don't have enough developers that are jumping in and learning these blockchain technologies. So uh, maybe there are 50,000 developers worldwide right now that know something about blockchain technologies. And if you compare that to the 10 million Java developers, uh, that's nothing. 
So we're still in the very early days, and I'd, I'd love to see more and more developers uh, learning these new technologies uh, so they can be able to develop more applications on the blockchain specifically. And, and you're an you're, you've been an advisor at Ethereum for almost from the beginning. I mean, that's when it sounds like you guys met <laughs> in the very yes. early days. True. And, and you saw, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting how these networks work, right? Here's one of the, you're really interested in the blockchain, and then here you uh, happen to run into one of the, you know, the, the, the company that probably has changed the blockchain the most out of any company just at a local meetup. It's pretty amazing yeah. how that works. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm also involved with the, the Bitcoin ecosystem. Um, my my first uh, three uh, investments in the space were uh, in the Bitcoin space. Uh, Media Chain, ChangeTip, and Open Bazaar. And to this date, uh, Open Bazaar is a Bitcoin peer-to-peer e-commerce uh, solution. Uh, so there's no Ethereum in, in Open Bazaar, uh, at least not yet. <laughs> but uh, so Bitcoin is is also very prevalent uh, in, in the space, uh, uh, in, in my interest. Gotcha. And uh, are, are there any? Um, I know we're skipping around a little bit, a little bit but are there any applications? You know, we're talking about some a- kind of some applications. Are there any applications that you see are going to you know, continue to? really kind of take off because of Ethereum or built on the blockchain initially? I mean, there's there's so many coming out, <laughs> but, uh, mm. you know, do you have a inkling of like, you know, this area is going to probably be the most ripe? Like you mentioned, the Open Bazaar for e-commerce, or do you have other ideas what could be could become a hot? Yeah, I mean, this, this is still evolving. I mean, we can see some examples right now. Like another uh, platform that uh, I'm a big fan of, and I was also an early uh, advisor to them uh, since uh, June of 2016, is uh, Steemit. Uh, so Steemit, S-E-E-M-I-T, is like a decentralized Reddit, and it's a way to publish content, and you can earn uh, cryptocurrency uh, via your actions, via being there, via either publishing or uh, or liking or uh, making comments or uh, promoting uh, certain content. So uh, th- this is, in my opinion, part of uh, the future of work. So you are basically being compensated for the attention and the time you are you are giving to a particular platform. And and this is an important development, I think, and we're going to see more examples like that where uh, in the past, if you think about it, we spent so much time on Facebook, for example, that we don't get compensated for our time. Uh, but going forward, uh, we're going to be compensated by either uh, uh, because of our time, because we're spending time doing something that is active, or maybe we're giving data to uh, another platform. So I call this active work or passive work. So we could be sharing uh, some of our habits, data, or maybe our healthcare data uh, or some other other data, obviously in a private way. And maybe if it's aggregated, it's valuable to somebody else and they could be paying us in tokens. So we're going to see a lot of models, uh, business models that would be based on the, this type of uh, transaction where, where the user is a participant and, and can earn tokens, but also can spend them in, in new ways. Uh, I'm also encouraged when I see, I want to see more applications, uh, more apps that uh, are literally on in your smartphone 
that allow you to, at the basic level, manipulate money, like send and receive um, currency uh, from one person to another. We're not, we haven't seen that yet. I mean, you have wallets, but it's look still a little bit tricky. You have to punch in uh, cryptographic addresses. Uh, I'd like to see that to be more simplified, um, and that could touch a lot of the uh, remittances uh, market, uh, but uh, then you can go into industry-specific applications like insurance. Uh, peer-to-peer insurance could be another one. Uh, there's a company I'm involved with called Etherisk, and they are developing uh, a protocol for uh, decentralized insurance. The first product will be on flight delay insurance, for example. Hmm. Another aspect could be healthcare, um, and we can think of many ways where uh, a medical record could be or parts of it could be uh, stored or, or pegged to the blockchain so that you know who's touching your medical record when and where, and then you have uh, ways to control that. And then, obviously, in the enterprise space, a lot of companies are now investigating using the blockchain to uh, cut a lot of the the time it takes for them to do business with each other. So there they see it as a time-saving uh, or as a uh, process improvement type of uh, uh, enabler. And that, so that's more on the enterprise side. Uh, but having said that, uh, again, back to the consumer, I'd like to see more and more consumer apps that are using the blockchain. Open Bazaar, you mentioned, already has an app. You can download it now. Uh, in a few minutes, she can be up and running and either buying something from somebody else halfway across the world using Bitcoin as a currency, or you can sell something uh, and, and then become a, a seller on the platform. And you do that without any fees, no licensing fees, and your credit card fees. And I think that's a big improvement. Do, do you think that uh, geography could play a role in the sense that I'm thinking like some developing countries who may not have all of our legacy infrastructure could potentially jump to some of the, you know, to cryptocurrency you know, whether it's sending and receiving money or some of the other use cases you mentioned, do you think that's a potential or is it going to be more in developed countries where it's going to take off? Well, it, it's varied. I mean, the, the developed countries uh, have a lot of users that have access to the technology. Okay. So logically speaking, you would think that they would be the ones adopting it uh, before others. But one thing that is going counter uh, this kind of adoption in the developed countries, in most of them, not all of them, is the fact that uh, the regulators are a little bit more heavy-handed in the developed countries. And they are, in some ways, in certain some jurisdictions, slowing down um, the excitement that the startups have in terms of uh, deploying this technology. Because the essence of the technology is permissionless, permissionless innovation. Uh, when you talk about that, uh, the blockchain uh, is really the best example for that, uh, because now we can we want to send value, we want to send uh, money or, or, or information, we want to send uh, content uh, without going through intermediaries. So it, it's a great manifestation of this freedom of of, uh, of sending and receiving, and it's creating uh, a lot of innovation. And um, the, the issue with uh, developed countries is uh, the regulators are quite sophisticated, and they they can put uh, they can if we can talk about that if you want now or later. 
um, the regulatory the regulatory aspect is a little bit tricky uh, because uh, blockchain is a global phenomenon and it's a global technology. It doesn't know any borders. It doesn't think there are any borders. And the dilemma that the, regular, that the regulators have is that they all operate on a local level. So they are trying to understand how to marry the global with the local. And uh, there are many dimensions to that. Um, and, and that's why they are being a little bit uh, conservative in some aspects. And um, they are issuing warnings in some, in some jurisdictions uh, and, and not providing um, a high level of clarity in terms of what can be done and what cannot be done. Uh, but at the same time, you have other jurisdictions like Switzerland or Singapore or Gibraltar and Malta uh, that have been more progressive and that are seeing that this, this is a new way uh, potentially for them to gain some ground at the global level and to be more open-minded and more willing to accept uh, the experiments that the blockchain companies want to to have. And now these countries and these locations are attracting uh, international startups that have come from anywhere in the world uh, through those jurisdictions, uh, spawning these companies there and working with the, the legal environments. Um, and and, and that, that's really been a drain uh, from the uh, places where they are coming from. Uh, specifically the U.S., Canada, and other places where uh, the regulators have been more conservative specifically. Interesting. And th- this kind of goes into the ICO craze too, but then and China essentially stopped. Did they stop all the ICOs essentially? Within yes, China? China's uh, situation is a little bit uh, unique, and I wrote about this about uh, two weeks ago. Uh, they did stop the uh, ICOs and they did stop the exchanges from uh, operating. And, and they did that for um, several reasons, and there were some factors behind that. Uh, one of them is a political factor. They have the the next uh, the next uh, election is uh, is on October the 18th. It's a big Congress of the Communist Party, and what they did, uh, I mean, they did that to clean up uh, the, the slate basically before the election to show that they are really uh, doing something um, and and not wanting to have this this thing behind them. Um, and they did that because there there were some scams that were going on in. In the area of ICOs, um, a lot of the Chinese promoters were uh, promoting ICOs as a get-rich-quick scheme. Mm. Uh, so there was a lot of that going on. And with the exchanges, many of them did not have KYC, know your customer procedures, until only recently, early this year. So the Chinese authorities were seeing that a lot of money was fleeing uh, China via cryptocurrency exchanges, and they did not like that. So again, it's part of them reasserting their control. I mean, look, they even they, they did things like they even stopped cockfight uh, right now, just up to the elections. So it's kind of a way to doing this until the election. And I suspect that they will uh, re-enable uh, some more sensible types of regulation um, that uh, will, will put more order, basically, into what has happened so far. And this will be a good thing. And the other thing, uh, finally, is that there is a rumor that they might even uh, launch their own cryptocurrency based on the Chinese yuan. Wow. So there's nothing uh, wrong with that, actually. It would be a positive uh, thing. And again, I mean, China likes to have their own version of everything. <laughs> uh, if you look at what happened in the, in the online world, 
they have their own Google, they have their own Facebook, they have their own Uber, uh, they have their own version of PayPal, they have their own version of eBay, and that's how they do things over there. So they will have their own version of the cryptocurrency. It wouldn't surprise me. And I, I want to come back to the ICOs, but before that, I was curious, you know, if you were the Canadian or United States government, what would you... Uh, and I think you've written about some of this, is what do you recommend them to do to compete with like Switzerland and some of these other countries? Yeah, I mean, I've written a, a long uh, open uh, letter yeah. <laughs> to the OSD, which is the uh, Ontario Securities Commission, the equivalent of the SEC. And what I would ask them to do, which is what I asked in this letter, the petition actually, is is to think of this as an as an experiment and then be uh, more open-minded with, uh, with their sandbox and be more clear with their language. And and uh, right now, there's lots of obscurity. There's lots of uncertainty. And in the face of uncertainty, startups will flee somewhere else. The last thing you want is to be not certain about certain things. And they've done this maybe for a purpose uh, because they are not sure, or maybe they want to see, they'd like to see all the, uh, these token models as, um, as securities. That's the easy way for them to fall back on. If they all say, well, it's a security, then we'll have to apply security rules. That's the easy way out. But that's not good enough. The reality is that these tokens are a new asset class, and they have to be recognized as such. And I predict that in the next few months, months there will be more recognition of these tokens as a new asset class, and they will have, uh, they will, we will give them certain properties that will be accepted. So it's not a security in many cases. In some cases, it is a security. But in many cases, it is not a security. So it has to be treated as such. And what they need to do is to update the regulations. So what we are asking them to do is to update the regulations and evolve with the times, evolve with the fact that this is a new technology. And we need to see now what has changed with it. And there's really three components here. There is the component of the consumers, or investors being able to invest in these currencies or tokens. The second aspect is the companies, the startups or the protocols themselves being able to uh, be created uh, based on these protocols without uh, having to jump through our hoops in terms of uh, uh, what what would make them uh, legal. Uh, and then the third, thirdly is the funds and the fund managers that now want to also uh, manage uh, these assets uh, in, in, in ways um, that that uh, would be part of that ecosystem. So uh, the regulators have to operate at these three levels and then provide more clarity uh, as as to uh, what 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 would be compliant uh, for them. Well, that, yeah, that would be great. Okay, yeah, yes, I enjoyed reading that. I'm glad you uh, posted it for everyone. So uh, I, I have a lot more questions around that, but. I, we should probably keep going. So to talk about ICOs, you know, I'm curious to get to your, you know, what what do you think of the kind of the ICO craze in the last six months? And is it good or bad? Um, yeah. What's, mm. What are your kind of overall thoughts on? Yeah. I mean, we so far in the last two, uh, in the last uh, 12 months, uh, more than $2 billion uh, and we're probably close to two and a half to 2.7 uh, in the last uh, 17 months or so, uh, when this whole thing started. So um, it's not a lot of money in the great scheme of things, but still, it is a lot of money when you compare it to how much money is going into startups 
from traditional venture capital in the early stages. So for the first time in June, uh, more money has been going into ICOs than uh, seed or angel money going into tech startups. So we, we've eclipsed that. So that's a very good data point. Uh, we are we are kind of entering a phase where uh, we're going to see more of those types of um, companies being funded with this model. So the fact is that all of these cryptocurrencies have appreciated in the past year. The total market cap uh, of uh, about a thousand cryptocurrencies is close to 150 billion dollars. Wow. Whereas a year ago it was only about 10 or 12 billion. So look at all of this wealth that was created in the last year. And what's going on right now is a lot of this wealth is being recirculated and reinvested in the new ICOs that are coming uh, onto the scene. And uh, out of those, is, there's maybe 1,000 or 1,100 cryptocurrencies. The top 100 currencies constitute about 99% of this market cap. So there's, there's a big concentration, but there are newcomers every day. You'd see new currencies like Cardano just came on the scene, and it has a market cap of close to $500 million, like boom, in one day. You see something new with that market cap, and, and we're seeing several of them on a, on a weekly and monthly basis. So this phenomena is, is kind of interesting. I, I'm not saying it's going to stay and last forever. And uh, the peculiar aspect here is that m many of them are overvalued. I will admit that to you. Uh, but maybe on a relative ba basis, they are okay relative to each other. So you have Bitcoin as a big dog, and then second is Ethereum and Ripple, and it goes down from there. Uh, so when I look at ICOs and, uh, and how I evaluate them, I mean, there are really four aspects that I look at. Uh, and, and one is the fact that it is still a startup. Any ICO, whether it's a, it's a protocol or an application or a service or a platform, whatever it is, it is really a startup at the end of the day. It means it has to go and acquire customers, users. It has to uh, get developers to uh, be convinced to use it. So there are lots of startup characteristics that you have to look at. Secondly, there's the token functionality. Like, What have you thought about for the token? What will it do? Is it a utility? Is it a right? Is it an ownership? Is it a security? How will the users interact with the token? And how do you prove that? Because at the beginning, it's all a hypothesis. You have to go and prove it. Thirdly is the sales mechanics, the ICO sale itself. How have you uh, uh, created the sales mechanics? What are the rules and terms that you've put together? And, and how uh, are you distributing these tokens and, and how, how will you govern the um, monetary policy of these tokens? And finally, the transparency aspect. What is the commitment of the company in terms of being transparent going forward? Because these companies, it's like being public from day one. Mm. So that comes with a lot of responsibility. And these companies are young, and they are not used to being public from day one. So I'm interested to see how uh, they are... Uh, communicating their transparency, and and uh, and, and that, that's an important aspect. Um, another thing that I'm seeing here is that they many of them are surrounding themselves with advisors uh, that are there for marketing purposes uh, to um, elevate uh, the awareness level of these companies beyond the noise level. 
uh, I mean, that's good at the beginning, maybe to to sell your tokens and to get enough users uh, to to um, support it and, and and give you the tokens. I mean, buy into it. But uh, to be successful, you have to have real mentors behind you, and and you have to be uh, surrounding yourself with advisors that have been doing this, that, uh, that have have had experience in in startups in the startup world. And, and that's a weakness in many uh, ICOs today. Uh, they try to go at it alone, and 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 uh, I think they will they will uh, uh, face some challenges going forward. Gotcha. So like the the valuation fundamentals for an ICO is, I mean, it's like any startup, right? It's hard to put a exact price or a value, right? Pre revenue, because most of these ICOs are are they pre revenue? Most of them. Most of them okay. are pre-revenue, pre- well, and most of them are pre-product. Okay. Okay. I mean, they are selling okay. based on a on a on a well-designed website that uh, has uh, six languages. So that's another trick of the trade, mm-hmm. which is to make sure that you are uh, translating your website fully in the languages where the money is coming from. I mean, we never had that before. And the website typically you tell, you think of the languages after you become successful here you're thinking of the language before uh, just because you want to appeal to the Chinese um, uh, consumer you want to appeal to the Korean uh, consumer you want to appeal to the Japanese one and so on and then uh, you uh, the, the variations are uh, I mean the buying is based on the white paper on the belief that it's a good idea and uh, and in many cases the product is not there. Uh, in some cases it is there in its early uh, uh, shapes, uh, but in most cases it is not there. So you, you're giving them money so they can so they can uh, develop the product or the or, or or the protocol. Makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, I know we're almost out of time, but I still want to ask. I definitely want to still talk. If you have a few minutes about the your new index fund and the token awareness initiative. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about the WMX and your your new uh, index fund? Yeah, I mean the the, uh, the, the WMX is, is an index. Uh, it's a basket of fifteen currencies uh, that I selected as a starting point, and uh, I've had some experience doing that in the early uh, internet days. I was running something called the V2 index, and at the time it was an index. It was a paper index of uh, internet companies that had gone and became public. And that index did very well for two years. It was the highest rated index. But at the time, uh, it was a paper index. Uh, it was not easy to list uh, uh, indices um, as it is today. Um, so I've always uh, had this uh, expertise in, in looking at uh, the market from an index point of view. And now with this platform called Iconomy, uh, I-C-O-N-O-M-I, uh, they made it possible for DAA um, uh, managers, digital assets array managers, an array is like a basket basically, to put together a, uh, these currencies and to manage them. And, and that's what I did. So it's a WMX uh, index, and, and you can buy into it on the iEconomy platform. Uh, but I'm going to be actively managing it, which means that it will be rebalanced uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, uh, I might change the the weighting of each one of these currencies, and there will be new currencies that will be added, and there will be some that may be removed as well. Uh, so uh, if once, if I judge that some of them have 
uh, gone up in price uh, and and that may be overvalued or may not run uh, too much higher uh, in the future, I might uh, change the weighting or or remove them and introduce new ones. Uh, So it will be an interesting experiment to see how it performs uh, versus the market. And I was just talking to somebody about that. We didn't know of an index fund. And then like a week later, you sent that out saying, like, oh, man, that's good timing. And uh, do you know, are there many other index funds out there right now? Uh, there aren't a lot. Uh, there are 12 on economy, uh, and I'm one of the two first 12 that came along. And each one is slightly different. Uh, there are others that are doing it differently. Some of them are doing it by selling a token, which will then be a proxy to the fund. Uh, but I'm not a big fan of that. I, I don't understand why you need a token uh, to be a proxy to a fund. Why not just take money and put it in the fund? Because if you have a token and then you have a fund, you're introducing too much risk in there. The token will fluctuate and your fund will fluctuate. And then you got to start to get creative in terms of linking them. Uh, so I don't like that approach. And this is a risk right now. I'm seeing a lot of these funds, a lot of funds are being created today. Uh, there are maybe 70 to 80 funds coming on the scene in the crypto space, uh, maybe totaling uh, $1.3 billion or so uh, in, in money available to be invested. And, and a lot of this money is coming from the traditional Wall Street uh, sector. And I, I think this is introducing a systemic risk in the system because we're not ready yet for uh, Wall Street type and traditional type of valuation for these tokens. And you cannot apply that uh, because these tokens are very immature. They are very early. Uh, you cannot really apply valuation techniques because the metrics are not there. Uh, the volatility that we see is really a macro volatility uh, based on the mood in China or based on some news or based on things that are not really intrinsic to the token itself. And even if you look at uh, the volumes, uh, it's very difficult to make real correlations. So I think it's very early right now to invest systemic, uh, systematically into these uh, currencies in the traditional sense, uh, unless you want to speculate. And the risk here is that these funds are going to fuel the speculative uh, fever uh, that we have today. And many of them are, are so-called investing in these tokens, but they don't even know what the token does, and they haven't even used it. Mm. And the purpose of the token is not to be speculated upon. The purpose of the token is to be a utility, to have a function within a network, within a, a protocol, within an application, within a service for the user, for the end user. And secondarily, it is to be traded uh, for a given value. But if the valuation gets too much ahead and too far ahead of the actual value of the token, that introduces a big risk. And I think that's where we might see a crash down the line or a lot of jittery, act, jittery action is going to happen. And, uh, and and that's something that I'm not very excited about seeing right now. Because can you, can you short any of these cryptocurrencies? I know it's always been an issue. Is anybody working on the ability? Uh, yeah, I heard that there are, there will be uh, ways to, uh, to even short uh, uh, these currencies. I'm not sure if you do it for on all of them. I mean, if it's available. But at least for Bitcoin and some of the big currencies, you'll be able to short, uh, to short them as well. Interesting. Okay. Well, we're pretty much out of time, but still want to hear a little bit more about the token awareness initiative we kind of mentioned beforehand. Do you want to tell us a little bit about about that? 
Yeah, it's a it's a non-profit initiative that I've uh, been thinking about uh, for a while, and now I just uh, introduced it uh, this week. And the idea here is to promote uh, responsible token generation best practices, and that's that's the, the main thing here. Uh, I don't want us to get too carried away in making it too easy and making it uh, uh, making it possible to have scams in the in the ICO space. Um, so uh, if it's done right, I think it's, it's good. Uh, if it's not that done right, it's, it's not good, obviously. Uh, and uh, what happened now is uh, some groups have been working on uh, publishing best practices and and, uh, and and ways to do it right, and I've been doing that for the last two years. Uh, but now we're, we're trying to put a bit more order into this. Uh, so it's going to be a collection of of the best best practices and the best educational resources for com- for compliance. Uh, there are lots of regulators out there now that are starting to issue their positions uh, on uh, on tokens and updating their regulatory their, their regulations. Uh, so this is good news, but we need to see the whole picture. So I wanted to have one space where you can see the whole picture mm. and to avoid blind spots. So if you want to really know what's going on, you just go to tokenawareness.com. And, and you get a list of uh, the, re- the main regulators, what they are doing, uh, what the latest regulatory uh, briefs are and notes are from the different countries, uh, what is the compliance status, what are some best practices, and, and who's doing what, who are the associations behind that, uh, who are the lawyers, who are the ICO service providers um, that are involved. So it's like a 360-degree mm. view on this whole marketplace. And you're pulling all this data together yourself, or are you? Ever it like is created. Yeah. Correct. It is created. It is created, and uh, I'm joined by by a steering group, yep. uh, and we're going to expand that group. It will be uh, folks that I know, that I trust, that I've worked with before, and that are each uh, from different parts of the world uh, that are really kind of uh, feet on the ground and that know the actual uh, compliance. Uh, aspects uh, from the different places uh, uh, and, and that will feed in uh, this, this data uh, to, to the site. Excellent. Well, that's definitely a great initiative and much much needed. So I uh, definitely appreciate you uh, pulling that together. That's a lot of work. It, it was a lot of work to, <laughs> to start uh, with the first version of it. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah what do you like to do uh, in your free time? <laughs> uh, I don't have a lot of free time, to be honest, but... <laughs> Uh, one uh, obsession of mine recently and uh, becoming a hobby is uh, natural wine and finding natural wine. So for those that are not sure what natural wine is, and there's a big analogy between natural wine and cryptocurrency. So natural wine is a uh, is a phenomenon um, that uh, it's about making wine without chemical uh, or or uh, with minimal technological intervention in how you grow the grapes and how you make them. And, uh, and it's it really uh, uh, another way of making wine. It, it, it's kind of a, a new uh, movement. Uh, I mean, maybe not that new, but it's still small. Uh, in the same way that cryptocurrency is small today, uh, so I like to make the analogy. And uh, the thing is that it's very difficult to find natural wine, depending where you live. Uh, but once you've experienced it, uh, then you may not go back to the other types of wine that is made in in very um, uh, kind of uh, 
automated manners and with a lot of interve- intervention, and especially they put a lot of chemicals and sulfites into them. Uh, but natural wines is really a way to return to the way that wine should be made, huh. and the wines are much more expressive and more organic, and, and that's really a big passion of mine right now. Really interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know much. I've heard, a, I read something on this so a while back, but I've never tasted one. I mean, is it hard to get natural wines? Uh, it depends where you live, okay. and uh, you have to go and seek it, uh, and you have to find it. And uh, it's not just about making it organic. So the organic uh, growing is only a part of it. It more applies to uh, the artisanal ways that the winemaker makes the wine, and without the intervention and how they um, uh, kind of ferment it with the more skin contact in some cases, and uh, taking into uh, into, um, uh, into uh, consideration the the soil and the and the weather and the moon and all of that. So it's really it's another way of making wine uh, that could be more challenging, but it's more rewarding on the on the palate. Interesting. Well, wow. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna look up that too. You told me to look up Zencaster. I'm going to also look up a natural wine to see if there's any uh, around this area. Yeah, sure. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, that's a pretty good uh, place to end, I think, this podcast. And uh, William, really appreciate uh, you coming on and sharing all your thoughts. I mean, you just have so much knowledge and experience in the space. So really appreciate hearing um, what you're excited about, nervous or not as excited about. So <laughs> it's been great. Thanks very much for having me, Dave. Definitely. And, uh, yes, I will keep reading all your posts and whatever else you put out. So keep, keep uh, pumping stuff out. <laughs> Thank you. And, and, uh, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of flyover labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And we'll, we'll see you next time. Thanks everyone. Thanks William. Bye.